When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Tuesday, quarter past nine. Hope there's a smile on your face. Coming up today, from growing up in Athlone to becoming the world's most powerful technology regulator, Helen Dixon shall be here in 15 minutes. Did you sign up for the Gorthy after the age limits were changed? Thousands did. So, what happens now? And Pancake Tuesday. As you heard yesterday, the price of a pancake has gone up 3% in the last year. Mm, How do you eat yours? When you call 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text, you can WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Now, let's see what's happening around the region and around the world. Uh, Front of the Irish Times today, US President Joe Biden adding his voice to the growing international calls for Israel to drop plans for an all-out military assault on the city of Rafah in southern Gaza. And also Jordan's King Abdullah adding to the chorus of people, international leaders, who are urging Israel to think very carefully about their next move. Another headline on the front of the Irish Times concerns the HSE. Lots of health-related stories, actually, today. The organisation is to cut €250 million from its budget. And instantly you wonder, well, how is that going to affect patients? They say they are going to convert agency staff into full-time employees. And obviously agencies apply a premium to whatever the staff are getting paid. So this, in effect, cuts out the middleman and they will achieve some savings in doing that. There is also a story on the front of the Irish Independent today. Nurse allowances in public sector pay deal sweeteners. So as part of the negotiations which recently concluded and have yet to be voted on, the pay deal had some across-the-board increases, but there are specifics for certain employees, such as nurses. And as you know, it's very hard for Ireland to retain some of its medical graduates. They tend to go overseas, and this would make it more tempting for them to stay in Ireland. It doesn't just apply to nurses and midwives, but also medical laboratory scientists. And it says HSE managers. Managers. Do we really need to sweeten their deal? Anyway, I'm sure the devil is in the detail. Uh, There's also uh, a story on the front of the Irish Daily Mirror today. Ban the bullies. Ireland urged to follow UK law. Now, we had the bullies, by the way, being a reference to the bull terriers, the XL bullies. And it's a dangerous dog clampdown that is being called for by various uh, charities and indeed the Leitrim County Veterinary Officer, it says here. Now, we had 
contacted Wexford County Council yesterday. As you know, there was a terrible incident in Enniscorthy, a little boy maimed for life afterwards. And we hope to hear from Wexford as to how it managed to clamp down with a similar number of staff to Leash Offley and Westmeath County Councils. So what was the strategy there and can we replicate it? Irish Daily Mail, Varadkar rejects Sinn Féin's stunt of TV licence amnesty. Stunt being his word, by the way. Sinn Féin will debate in the Doyle today abolishing the television licence and replacing it with taxpayers' money. So it'll come out of the general exchequer. And I suppose there are pros and cons for that. It was what the Future of Media Commission, a big panel of experts, recommended. And the negative might be, well, does it put any financial controls really on RTE if they know they're always going to be bailed out by the taxpayer? So... Anyway, that will be debated in the door. Let's hear what the arguments on both sides of the House shall be. Let's go inside the papers. Uh, What have we got for you? Apparently, six out of ten people support wind energy, according to a new survey by Wind Energy Ireland. Yes, the industry says it has 60% support. However, one in 25 people are opposed to wind energy development, according to this new opinion poll. Uh, More than a third of the 6,000 applicants for the Gordhi are from the 35 to 49 age group. So says a story in the Irish Examiner today. So having widened the age bracket to allow older applicants, it looks like the move has worked. And with 6,380 applicants if they're all accepted, and if they all graduate through Temple Moor, that will certainly bolster the Gartha ranks. The question is, what happens next and how quickly? There's a clash highlighted in the Irish Sun between the ACDC concert, which was announced yesterday for Croke Park on the 17th of August, and Electric Picnic in Stradbally. So if you're A fan of the rock legends, you've got a dilemma on your hands. Do you go to EP? Do you go to Croke Park? Not sure there's a real mixing of audiences there, but anyway, it is a little unfortunate in the timing because Electric Picnic was moved to earlier this year, if you recall. Normally you'd think, ah, end August, early September, that's when EP is. No, this year, two weeks ahead of time. Here's a very unsettling story concerning your tumble dryer. So the insurance company Aviva says it has seen a spike in claims for fires associated with dryers. Now, it's not actually the dryer itself going on fire, although that can happen. But what they've really noticed is where clothes spontaneously ignite after being taken out of the tumble dryer. Hang on, you wonder, how can that happen? So... Seemingly, if you use one of the eco-washes, or eco-dries, I should say, then there may be residue of oil left on your clothes. Your clothes come out hot, you pile them up, that heat intensifies, and then eventually the oil ignites. That's a little unsettling. So, full details in the Irish Independent today, but it is obviously a significant enough risk for an insurance company 
to sound the alarm. Irish Independent for full details. Lots of pancake recipes in your newspapers today. So do you like the simple pancake with the lemon and the sugar? Do you go for something more savoury? Or are you into the American-style pancakes where they're very, very fluffy? Not my personal taste, I have to say. I'd rather the more French-style, elastic-y, thin crepe. And according to the food bible Larousse, a good pan makes good pancakes. A dollop of sunflower oil, heated and then wiped with a piece of kitchen roll, leaves just the glossy sheen that you need, so you avoid the oily pancake syndrome. And then you keep that kitchen roll to hand and you re-grease the pan in between pancakes. And you ensure that both sides are cooked first before you flip. Otherwise you'll pebble dash yourself with batter. The big question then is what do you put on the pancake anyway? Over to you for the answer to that question. Hello to Vinnie Grennan in Road. Vinnie is always calling out Offaly County Council where the roads, if you'll pardon the pun, are not what they should be in road. In particular, he highlights in a new post online the Gar Road out of the village. And you can see on X, or Twitter if you prefer, where there is just a cluster bomb of potholes and some very deep. And he says, people have been inundating the council with complaints about the roads ever since work on the wind farm started, and I'm not blaming the wind developers, but the roads are absolutely horrendous around here. And he talks about the roads not being roadworthy, even though he's expected to keep his car roadworthy. I think you might be onto something, Vinny, but the problem is it's not just around your area. Much of the Midlands is peppered with potholes at this time of year. After the long winter, and it's high time the councils, and I'm sure they're on the agenda, but they'd want to accelerate their plans to fill in some of them. Where especially needs attention? 083 30 10 103, text or WhatsApp and let me know. Uh, a barman is causing a bit of a, a stir in London. Nate Brown is his name, and he says, um, there's no need to pour Guinness in two stages. Really? He says, pouring two-thirds of the glass, waiting a minute, and then pouring the final third does not impact the quality and is in fact just a marketing ploy by Guinness. Now, if you ask Diageo, and they're the owners of Guinness, they say it is absolutely required to get the consistency and the height. But this barman says he will never do a two-stage pour because it is not it is not going to make any difference. But if his customers insist, he will. I don't know, if you're in the bar trade, have you tried one and have you tried the other? And is there really a perceptible difference or is it all in the mind? Placebo effect. One or two more stories. Stock up on your tea because according to the, uh, trade, uh, the supermarket Sainsbury's in the UK... They are going to have supply chain issues because of problems in the Red Sea. And if it's going to impact Sainsbury's, it's probably a matter of time before it impacts Tesco and Super Value and Dunn's and Lidl and Aldi and all the others. 
and they are forecasting nationwide problems in the UK with tea supplies because it all comes from parts of Asia and East Africa and invariably that means going through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. Yeah. Not so sure I buy into that. There's always a little bit of panic induced from time to time. Stock up, sell out, somebody makes a profit. Anyway, that's what's in your newspapers today. If I missed anything, if you saw a story worth mentioning, please send it to me. Text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. The Midlands most listened to radio show, Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands 103. Still on the agenda today, did you sign up for the Gorthy? Because more than 6,000 people did. What happens now, though, and how quickly will they be recruited? First, when Helen Dixon took over the office of the Data Protection Commission, GDPR had yet to be introduced, nobody had heard of TikTok, and AI had something to do with cattle. Now she's moving on to Pastures New. Helen, you're very welcome to the programme. Good morning. Good morning. And of course, it all started for you in Athlone. Share some memories of childhood with us, if you don't mind. It did all start in Athlone. I was born and raised in Athlone. I went to school in Our Lady's Bower. Uh, I left only to head off to university. So I've been 30 odd years in Dublin now, uh, but still a frequent visitor back to Athlone. My mother is still based there. Uh, and still, of course, have my uh, old school friends. The old friends are the best friends uh, from that era. So Athlone's an important part uh, of me still. And when you went to college, what did you study? My undergraduate degree was applied languages, French and German. And then I did a master's in European economic and public affairs, a multidisciplinary master's. And over the years then, I've 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 done a few other courses Sounds like you took the scenic route into regulation then. I probably did. I started off my career after I graduated uh, with two US uh, multinational technology companies that were establishing European bases in Ireland. The first company was a small family held company. It was a Californian company uh, and uh, it was actually looking to set up an operation in Europe because the electricity supply was very unstable in California and it wanted a a failover operation. So that was a fantastic opportunity. I worked with them for six years, setting up their Dublin office, running a sales, a tech support and a distribution operation from Dublin uh, into the various countries in Europe and speaking French and German Mm. uh, every day to the customers we had there. Then I moved on. I was kind of eager to to try a bigger corporate environment. And I moved on to a company called Citrix. It's uh, Irish bases in East Point Business Park. Uh, and that was a bigger operation. It was a company targeting becoming a one billion turnover company when I joined it in 2000. Uh, very successful enterprise networking software company. So, again, lots to learn there in terms of recruitment Uh, management. And it was really then after I'd done about four or five years in that company that uh, I began to feel there might be more that I could achieve in my career. I was interested in policy. uh, And so I entered the first ever competition 
uh, for senior management, external senior management recruitment into the civil service. Uh, and I came in as the first ever external assist- assistant principal officer uh, into the Department of Enterprise in at the end of 2004. And I'm and curious, so that was, what was the culture adjustment coming from private sector technology into the civil service? It, it, it was an extraordinary adjustment. Citrix, as I mentioned, was a, an extremely innovative software company. And already at that time in the very early 2000s, we were using... Uh, video conferencing uh, to call between each other in the various uh, international offices of Citrix. And we were using all sorts of document sharing platforms and collaboration tools that actually Citrix uh, developed itself. And we were in an open plan office with sunshine and bright windows and uh, everyone literally connected together. And then when I moved into the civil service, really my abiding memory the day I walked in is of a very long, shiny, floored corridor, uh, but with locked doors all the way down Mm. it. Everyone was in individual offices uh, with doors with no windows in them. And there was utter silence. So it, it, it was physically a very strange environment. And then, of course, a very different way of working and making decisions. I recall when the decentralization program was announced, the Data Protection Office was initially based in Port Arlington. In fact, I used to go in and out of what was then a centre. I can't remember what it is now. Uh, But on a regular basis, and you'd look up and you'd see one or two people uh, working at their desks. And it was a very small operation, the Data Protection Commission at that time. And we spoke with your predecessor, Billy Hawks, on many occasions. And I think he was taking the train down from Dublin to work every day. Describe what attracted you to that. And I know perhaps some of the seeds were sown for a larger operation by the time you joined, but it must have seemed quite daunting. Well, what attracted me to the job wasn't so much uh, the fact that it was Port Arlington based. Uh, As I think you know, at the point I was hired, the government had made a decision that while it was going to retain the Port Arlington base, it wanted to appropriately, so I think, re-establish a headquarters for the office uh, in Dublin, where a lot of the very large regulated entities are based But what attracted me to the role is that I'd had several roles, including the one at Citrix, which was, as I said, about very large enterprise software implementations that were about data and permissions and access and levels of access. And in particular, the last role I had before I applied for the Data Protection Commission role was one as registrar of companies, which is essentially a role managing a very large database that's public facing to allow people see information about limited companies and businesses with which they're transacting. And while I was registrar of companies, I sat on a group called the Company Law Review Group that was looking at questions of whether the date of birth and the home address 
of company directors should actually be public on the public register and did issues of their privacy and security mm. trump the need of individuals to have that access and to know who they were transacting with in business terms. And it was a fascinating process whereby we ultimately came to the conclusion on that group that the information should remain public facing, but that there should be a process for specific individuals where perhaps particular security issues arose where they could, uh, with with Garda at attestation to the fact, have their details redacted. So it was really in that registrar of company roles that I developed um, a very significant interest in data protection and the issue of the balance of rights, the balance between the need to make public, uh, but the balance of the individuals. And and that's what prompted me to apply. Yeah. Uh, it was it was less about the, the centra or the spar. I'm also thinking in the modern context how the uh, prevalence of fraud and scam artists has made having information in the public domain higher and higher risk than may have been the case at that time. That's right. And and then countering that, you have anti-money laundering uh, legislation now that equally to counter fraud requires all of us to verify our identities. It requires banks to have know your customers policies and procedures so that they know the identity of who they're dealing with. But the more data you collect, then, of course, um, the more risk in 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 terms of a security breach. So it, it's all the time. It's not a static thing, I think, ever data protection, particularly as technology evolves, as social norms evolve. Um, I, I've talked before about um, one of the illustrations of how our social norms have evolved is that idea of caller ID. Um, in the past, uh, all of us would have had our caller IDs displayed uh, and, and now, or, or sorry, would, would have limited mm. um, our, our caller IDs and now none of us will answer our phones unless uh, we, we can see the ID of the caller. So So people's attitudes change. And it is always about evolving and looking at where the balance lies and what the state of the art in technological assistance to find that balance is. So when you assume the office of Data Protection Commissioner, you are, because so many tech companies are based in Ireland, you are in effect regulating for all of Europe. And what, how would you describe the attitude of not no companies specifically, but we're talking about big giants, Apples and Googles or, or, or Alphabet as they are now and Meta, Facebook as they were then. What approach did they take to you? It, it, it can vary greatly. I mean, what, one of the features that you're aware of and, and you've mentioned of all of these huge companies is that uh, they're frequently American or, or Chinese owned in the case of TikTok. So they have evolved in a completely jurisdiction, a jurisdiction that typically does not have the standard of data protection laws that Europe has. And so often the attitude that you can find is one of uh, bafflement. They don't necessarily understand uh, EU data protection laws. Uh, it can be resistance. Uh, they don't think all aspects of EU data protection laws are sensible. 
And to take a case in point, uh, you'll probably be aware and your listeners will that a particular uh, battle point between the Irish DPC and in particular Meta has been around the issue of transfers of the data of EU persons from the EU to the US. Mm. And this is something that all companies do, but the battle has really played out between the DPC and Meta. And under EU data protection laws, there's a prohibition on transferring EU data to a third country unless that third country can be shown uh, to demonstrate an essentially equivalent level of protection. Uh, and, And without getting into all of the details, Uh, the EU courts have deemed that the US has not demonstrated that essentially equivalent level of protection over the years. Uh, And so we came to a point in the summer of 2022 uh, where we were preparing to suspend Meta's transfers to the US. So over an issue like that, the US really doesn't understand uh, why the EU is adopting a pr- an approach that they say will destroy trade, that will disrupt global data flows. But of course, the EU perspective correctly is that EU data protection laws are worth nothing if you can simply export the data out of the jurisdiction uh, and then the standards of protection no longer apply. So it, it's a long answer to say that the attitude isn't necessarily bad. It's it's one that starts with not fully understanding. And it's taken years of engagement, in some cases, litigation, regulatory action, enforcement and different forms uh, of, of interaction with these multinationals to bring us to a place where I think there's a high level of understanding now, even if there isn't always agreement on implementation. And, and, and it has to be said the standards of protection and the choices to users and the transparency has improved significantly over the last 10 Mm. years. But I'm curious that while in public there may have been the legal battles, it's well documented how much these tech companies contribute to the corporate tax receipts of this country and how reliant we are on only a small basket of companies for so much money. Was there ever more subtle pressure placed on you to fall in line? No, there's never been any pressure whatsoever. And what the country takes in and tax takes doesn't really impinge one way or the other on the DPC. We're employed, we have our jobs and and we're paid to do our jobs regardless um, so I, I can say there's there's been complete independence of the office in my time. Um, if anything, the the starkest occasions where uh, we have really felt pressure have been those occasions where we've attempted to enforce against the state. That is where you can really feel the pushback. As, as opposed to anything that we do in terms of regulating the multinational technology companies. Mm. Well, time and again, I've seen the HSE come up in your annual reports as being guilty of breaches, other arms of the state as well. Have they improved? Have they gotten their act in order? There certainly have been improvements. The appointment of data protection officers uh, required under the GDPR and the various public sector bodies we have seen has brought improvements and improvements in terms of the linkage 
between a big organization like the HSE and members of the public that are trying to exercise their rights. So someone trying to get a copy of their data from uh, the HSE, all of that has improved. But issues of security, as you say, crop up repeatedly. Um, and it, it can be individual uh, clinicians who perplexingly take paper-based files uh, out of a hospital with them and they're then found uh, in, in an unsecured bin blowing in the wind. Uh, or it, it can be a massive data breach like the one that we saw in, in 2021. So I think there have been improvements, but there's a huge amount of work and investment that still remains to be done across the public sector. Another example I would point to is TUSLA. They crop up also repeatedly in, in our regulatory actions and in our annual reports. And there is massive commitment from the CEO down in TUSLA to improve their data protection performance. In part, their history hampers them because they were formed from an amalgamation of three different organizations and they have legacy systems that don't talk to one another, but they're on a pathway to correcting it. But it, it, it simply can't be done overnight and no amount of fines from my office or calling them out is going to make them capable of changing it. But what I can see is that they have the commitment and are on a pathway to improve it over time. A listener question, and this has come in from many people and uh, you've probably expected it. CCTV and its yes. usage to catch people who are breaking the law, let's say litter, dumping, councils deploying cameras in areas where uh, fly tipping is taking place. There have been data protection concerns around that, but why? What is the issue if somebody is breaking the law in catching them and getting evidence against them? Yes. So if someone is, is breaking the law or alleged to be breaking the law, interestingly, that's regulated under a different EU law than the GDPR in, in data protection terms. It's regulated under a law enforcement directive that also came into application in 2018. And in Ireland, the Data Protection Act 2018 that gave further effect to the GDPR, in fact, also transposes this law enforcement directive. And under that directive that relates to the processing of personal data, where there's the investigation of a criminal offence and potentially a prosecution, under that directive, it, it states that it's necessary where a state uh, is, is going to investigate a criminal offence and potentially prosecute and sanction that any personal data processing uh, that occurs has to be clearly set out in the law and the purpose of the processing has to be set out in the law. So when we began to look at the various local authorities and entities deploying CCTV, but predominantly the local authorities in the case of, of litter and fly tipping, um, we found that they didn't have a legal basis for the processing that they were undertaking that was commensurate with the directive that Ireland had signed up to now at EU level. And so, in fact, in that case, what we did is, having conducted a number of, of uh, investigations, we wrote to the relevant minister, 
uh, and and pointed out that uh, it it may be government and Iraq this policy that local authorities would have these powers, but in fact they weren't cited in the legislation currently in a way that that gave sufficient legal underpinning. And the government and the Iraq this ultimately responded to that. Uh, and the Circular Economy Act 2022 was enacted uh, in 2022 and has now corrected and provided that legal underpinning subject to all sorts of other safeguards that are now being implemented. But the legal basis is now there. And that's really where the Data Protection Commission was coming from. Let's try and look. It's to, to provide protections ultimately and to make prosecutions secure. Let's try and look to the future. And this is a very fast moving space. But what do you see as the biggest emerging threats to our data privacy? I think the um, pace at which our personal data is now being processed uh, is is really the biggest threat. AI implementations now and the source data, including personal data on which they're trained, are uh, giving rise to much faster and faster uh, processing of our personal data in circumstances where the um, usual forms of transparency and choice that we're used to are not going to be possible any longer. So at the moment, as we all know, when we go on to a website and it asks us, do we want to accept cookies or it says, read our privacy policy if you want to know what we do with your personal data, we can all take a couple of minutes and, and, and glance at that and decide we're happy to proceed in future, that's that's not going to be possible in the same way. It's all going to be happening a lot faster. So um, I think how we're going to have trust in the organizations that are processing our personal data in circumstances where we can't as easily interact uh, is going to be uh, the biggest question for all of us. And as we move to more integration of the biological with the uh, information technology, uh, then, you know, the questions around our identity are going to become greater and greater and how we uh, interface uh, with with technology. So when you say biological, do you mean, for instance, wearables tracking your... I'm thinking of wearables. Blood pressure and so on. That's it. Swallowable sensors uh, that that are collecting and transmitting data from from inside us, potentially bionic type uh, implementations, again, that are transacting with systems. We can envisage a future not too far away where we're in connected cars. And of course, I should say in 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 the backdrop uh, as as an issue uh the biggest issue facing us is really the issue of security, because, of course, if if we're in connected cars and if our lives are smart enabled uh, to such an extent that we're reliant on all of these systems, then uh, security of those systems uh, is and, and, and who is controlling them is critically important. Finally, you're moving to a new regulatory role in Comreg, which is responsible for telecoms and so on. Uh, you'll be regulating Air and Vodafone and such companies and making sure they're looking after their customers. And that's going to be no mean feat. But 
Is it not going to be a little dull by comparison, a more traditional industry? <laughs> Uh, well, well, there's lots to learn, uh, and and so learning can never be dull. It is, of course, more a market regulatory role, uh, more economic and technical analysis, and and less human rights based, of course, than data protection. So it, it'll certainly be different. But but I think any job where I'm learning uh, is always going to be an interesting one for me. Helen Dixon, grateful for your time. Thank you very much for taking our call this morning. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. That's the outgoing Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, originally from Athlone and with quite a colourful CV, as you've heard. Now, on 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore, back to the earlier subject of the pancake, the humble Shrove Tuesday delight and what to have on it. Love the Midlands. Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, Aviva Insurance is warning of clothes spontaneously igniting after being in the in the uh, clothes dryer. We ask the Westmeath Fire Service, or is it just an isolated case? Be the best heat saver of all in your and the perfect pancake. That's on Pancake Tuesday. Plus, we go gardening with Owen Reid in 20 minutes, so when you ask your question, 0818 300 103 is the number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. As you've heard in the news at 10, the Taoiseach says it's just wrong to call for an amnesty to somebody who hasn't paid their television licence. Sinn Féin is tabling a motion in the door later calling for the licence fee itself to be scrapped and replaced with exchequer funding. The party also wants an amnesty for those facing prosecution for failing to pay. But Leo Faradkar says that's not fair on those who do obey the law. I actually think for a lot of law-abiding, decent people uh, who pay their bills, uh, who pay the TV licence, they'd be uh, quite annoyed, actually, uh, at the thought that people who don't pay their way, uh, don't obey the law, would somehow get an amnesty from Sinn Féin. And I think that's just wrong, and we'll be opposing it uh, here in the Dáil uh, in the vote on Wednesday. Now, Thomas Gould is a Sinn Féin TD for Cork North Central, and Deputy Gould, will come on to the broader points in your motion in just a moment, but... How would you respond to the Taoiseach's argument that it would be unfair to law-abiding citizens if you introduce an amnesty? I would say that the Taoiseach is very hypocritical, Will, because back in 2017, when the water charges were abolished, there was an amnesty given to people who hadn't paid them. So it seems like the, the Taoiseach picks and chooses uh, who should be paying and who shouldn't. And the other thing the Taoiseach is really hypocritical over is for two and a half years, there was a commission report on the future of media sitting on their desks and the Taoiseach has enacted. So what Sinn Féin are doing is we are bringing forward a proposal that was brought forward by the Commission for Future Media in, in Ireland. So we're doing what the government are failing to do. And that is one of their main recommendations. So moving on to that point from the Future of Media Commission, this was a panel of, uh, there were some industry people involved, a lot of academics involved. They looked at different options to 
amend the TV licence or replace it and ultimately recommended central exchequer funding. One of the reasons government has resisted that, in their public statements at least, is it would throw the burden onto the taxpayer of an unknown cost in RTE, whereas the TV licence gives RTE more or less a fixed budget. How would you argue against that? Well, we would argue against that by by explaining we would allocate €140 million a year towards a new media, independent media fund. We would also give £12.5 each year to Unpost for investment because Unpost would be losing the 7% that they would have got from the licence fee. So we're taking care of Unpost, number one. And number two, it's £140 And just to leave your listeners know, Will, at this moment in time, 36% of licence fees are paid by the state when it comes to pensioners or people in receipt of the household package. So for the Taoiseach to make those statements either means he doesn't understand or he's not up to date with actually the financial situation. What we need is a sustainable funding model for um, public service broadcasting. What we are proposing will do that. But already there are many who would question RTE's link to government, the government of the day. But at least the licence fee is ring-fenced. The licence fee, the amount is determined by who is willing to pay. The amount RTE would receive if it's direct exchequer support, that would be the minister of the day at the stroke of a pen. How would you ensure independence of the organisation? Because what we're proposing, Will, is a triple-lock system to ensure editorial independence. The first thing is that this would be multi-annual funding. So this funding would be over four years and not one. So then the the figure would be given for a four-year period. And then the independent commission for Commission Amman would advise on the funding requirements over that four years. So it would be independently done. And then any government who would deviate from what the commission would recommend would have to get exceptional circumstances uh, permission to do that. Now, if there was an issue like Troika or financial crisis, then it might be needed. But outside of that, this triple lock protects the independence of media. So any, any kind of comments or points about that, this multi-annual funding, commission a man, and legislation put in place to protect independence. How do you protect the taxpayer, given what we've learned of RTE's behaviour, lack of corporate governance, uh, some would argue outright waste in the context, especially of uh, the toy show musical? Is it a bit previous to commit this money before they've gotten their house in order? Well, what we're proposing now, and I suppose just to let you know, that last year 13,000 people were brought to court for non-payment of the licence fee. Now, that was just below 2.1 million. And at the same time, RT squandered to over 2.1 million on the Late Late Toy Show, the musical. And they've squandered money in many other ways. So what we have on one side is ordinary families, ordinary people being brought to court with €1,000 Euro fine, maybe a short time in prison and the conviction against them. And at the other side... Uh, sorry, you, you can't the, be imprisoned for not paying a fine, if I'm 
Oh, you, Correct. Yeah, I think you could. Sometimes they brought people in the past and put them into prison for a couple of hours and then left them out again. But at well, least even, at the moment, that, if somebody wants to protest the behaviour in Orty, if they want to express their dissatisfaction, they have the choice of not paying their TV licence, whereas they wouldn't have that choice if it's coming out of their general taxation. But you see, the problem here is this is about, this is about all media. This is not just about people being upset with the executives of RT. We need a sustainable funding model for public service broadcasting. Like I'm on with you today now. This is a public service broadcast where you're talking to the people of the Midlands about local, national and global issues. So this is the kind of... Like we, we need to be very careful of fake news and uh, facts that are being given that are not true. That's why public service broadcasting, like what you're doing, is really important. And that's why we need independent funding so that people who do that kind of very vital work. So I'm talking to people who've told me they're not paying because they want to show their, their disgust at what's after happening in RT. But for the vast majority of people in RT, the hard-working people, they didn't cause these scandals. These were caused by the elites in RT, not the ordinary workers. And what we're proposing now is direct funding from the Exchequer to have a proper, uh, sustainable public sector broadcasting. And like this, things are changing in Europe. They're moving away from the licence fee. And Norway have adopted this system. And we think... It, it's fit for purpose for Ireland. But back to that point of if RTE has yet to get its finances in order, if it's running at a deficit, does it remove the impetus if you're going to commit this much money? Um, in other words, what incentive is there for them now to get their house in order? Well, this money is going on the figures from last year. And what we know for a fact is that there's been a dramatic rise in the amount of people not paying their licence. We also know last year one of four people didn't pay their licence. So what it means is RTE is going to come with their cap in hand in the next couple of months to the minister because they won't have the money to keep going. So the question then is, like the, the, new, the new management in RTE are bringing in serious changes, but they also need certainty about being able to perform their duties and the ordinary workers in RTE who never did nothing wrong. Like, some of those are facing redundancies, are facing major changes to their working arrangements. Like, they need to be known that they're going to be paid and that the work, the vital work they do is uh, protected. Finally, for now, it's been suggested on the government benches that the timing of this is cynical, given that Sinn Féin had a disappointing opinion poll. Uh, only a few days ago or a week ago, is well, why do it now rather than wait for the RTE process of uh, reform to end and reach its conclusion? Well, there's a couple of reasons. This report has been sitting on the government desks for two and a half years, right? So if the government had done their job and acted on this report, Sinn Féin wouldn't have to do it. But the problem was the government had been dragging their heels and we felt... With the crisis that's going to face RT this year, we have to make the move. And 
in relation to Sinn Féin, we have private members' motions lined up. Now, obviously, we keep it confidential, but, and we only announce them in advance. But we have a list of private members' motions that we are going to bring up. Housing is always one. Health is always one. And if the, if the government are talking about us being cynical, we have the government announcing the, um, the uh, child, child welfare uh, payment uh, being increased to over 18s in May, a month before the local and European elections. So, like, let, let's be real here. The government are playing politics with children and people's lives only because there's an election. Thomas Gould of Sinn Féin, thank you for taking our call this morning. Good morning, good morning. 0818 the Midlands 103 comment line. In 10 minutes' time, just under actually, Owen Reid shall be here from Fernhill Garden Centre in Athlone. So lots of conversation and questions about the garden coming up. After 11, the fire hazard that you mightn't expect, the tumble dryer itself doesn't just go on fire. Viva Insurance says clothes have spontaneously ignited after coming out of the dryer. Now we're going to ask the Westmeath Fire Service if this is for real. Maybe it's a one in a million shot or is there a legitimate concern here? I mean there must be something in it, if you'll pardon the pun, no smoke without fire if an insurance company is making the claim. It's time for the latest Community Diary with Tommy Solicitors at Loan, one of the largest, longest established and most respected firms of solicitors in the Midlands. A community information meeting will be held in Dysart Community Centre in County Ross Common this evening at 8 to discuss the recent granting of planning permission for wind turbines in the locality and all are welcome to attend. Anam Kara supports parents after bereavement and it's holding its next meeting in the Mullingar Park Hotel tomorrow evening at a quarter past seven and any bereaved parent is welcome regardless of the age of the child or the circumstances of the loss you don't have to register you just arrive on the evening and in the meantime check out anamkara.ie Samaritan's Recruitment Week is underway in counties Leash and Kildare So if you want to become a listening volunteer, they'll give you full training, mentoring and support and you can check out Samaritans Ireland on Facebook for full details. The Phoenix Venue and Nightclub invites you to a massive fundraiser back to the Harriers, the Valentine's Experience, this Saturday for Accessible Counselling Tullamore. Tickets are €15 from willwego.com or the Phoenix Tullamore Facebook page. And finally for now, Fonzie Mealy Auctioneers in Kilkenny presents the Making Room Sale on Wednesday the 21st with over 400 quality and affordable lots where you can dress your walls with paintings and prints, ceramics, light fittings, carpets, rugs, unusual collector's items as well as antique and modern furniture. See fonziemealy.ie for details. The Midlands 103 Community Diary is online at midlands103.com and if I missed something that's happening in your area, call 0818 300 103. The Community Diary, with thanks to Tormy Solicitors, experienced in the areas of law that affect people on a day-to-day basis. Tormies.ie The Midlands' most listened to radio show, Midlands Today. Midlands 103 
Owen Reid, you are a lifesaver from Fernhill Garden Centre in Athlone uh, because you have come with a Valentine's gift. <laughs> I, I just Not told, for me, I should I just stress. prompted you about that too, just before we came on here. You're very smart, Will. Yeah, it's a perfect present for a Valentine's gift. This is a, a camellia. It's our plant of the week in Fernhill this week. And uh, what prompted me to say that was because uh, yesterday I had a guy in the garden centre said, listen, I want to give the wife something that's not going to wither away in a few days' time. Can you suggest a couple of plants? We have a little planter here. I thought it was so smart. He came in and I said, geez, that guy's going to get serious brownie points if he goes home with oh, this. Oh, yeah. But you Just are even going, thought of the effort, you know. You are going to get hate from florists everywhere now. Well, they're up their eyes. They need a bit of pressure took off them. So there you go. <laughs> okay, so you walk in with this. It's got some lovely white flower on it. it there are some uh, yet to come out. So eventually this is going to be abundant with colour. This is going to be abundant with flowers and it's not going to just be abundant with flowers this year. Camellia is just starting to come into flower now. They're an amazing plant that they are. They're a hardy evergreen that, uh, like a little bit of peat moss, ideal for containers. Absolutely perfect for containers because most of our gardens here in the Midlands are limey. So this guy likes a peat, likes to have his feet in, inside in peat. So make sure you plant it in ericaceous compost. And position it somewhere where it's not getting the early morning sun. Reason for that is flowers this time of the year, you get a bit of frost mm. this time of the year, the, the flower buds get a little bit frosted, they thaw out too quickly and they fall off. Whereas you put it somewhere where the sun's going to come around a little bit later in the afternoon, perfect. So it's a great old plant to have in your garden on, on, on a patio deck outside your front door, back door. And it's going to not just flower this year, it'll flower for years and years to come. An amazing, amazing plant. Alternatively, you could get a rose, but not chopped. Get a rose that could be planted and yeah. will grow into a bush. Lots of options. The guy that yesterday bought a beautiful formium, which is kind of a plant. It's a, it's a green, fleshy plant. No flowers on it at all. But he just bought it because he had a spot in the garden, said it'd be a good idea. Get a gift wrapped, off we go. So and at least he'll have a good story to tell every, uh, every, every summer when somebody's looking at that plant. It's a good excuse to get back out in the garden as well. We've been in hibernation for weeks at this stage, months we have, nearly. Yeah, it's been a pretty miserable winter. A lot of wind, a lot of storms um, and a lot of water. I mean, I don't think we really have seen any great dry spells since last July and the ground is very, very wet, not just here, but everywhere. So the the gardeners haven't really had the opportunity to get out and get stuck into the gardens. And everybody is chapping at the bit to get into the gardens and do something. They're starting with the, the, the traditional stuff. They're sowing their seeds, they're getting their spuds, getting them ready, getting them prepared. And they're starting to gather their bits and bobs to get out and, and get into the garden. When the weather is good at the weekends, just the, my, 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 my advice would be get out and tidy your garden. There has been quite a bit of storm damage, a lot of mm. branches lying on the ground. Um, there's a lot of stuff falling over. Check your, your trees, that the stakes are properly tied up. So just a bit of housekeeping this next couple of weekends. And, and, and survey your garden, see what needs to be done and start preparing for spring. Because when it comes, it'll come with a flourish. So... Get on top of your weeds, kind of get your mulch down, make sure your beds are nice and clean so that you're not having to work too hard in your garden. Get ahead of, of the growth before it comes. Horses for courses. I actually like conditions like this as opposed to trying to dig up very hard frozen ground, which you could often have at this stage in yeah, February. It's absolutely, more yeah. manageable. Maybe yeah. I'm just lazy and I don't like the... The workload involved. Well, it's very good for you. I mean, you save you, save you a gym membership straight away if you just get out. The That's garden. true. That's true. Anyway, first question. How do I store 
Amaryllis? Amaryllis. Amaryllis, yeah. After flowering. Amaryllis is a bulb and you would treat it the exact same as you would an onion or a garlic. You'd, 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 you let it die down and you tie it up and, and, and leave it in a dry shed and then pot it up again next year and it'll come and flower again next spring. It's a spring, it's an early, very early sp- flowering uh, spring bulb so it's absolutely spectacular. Generally tend to get them flowering in around Christmas time and huge big... F- Tulip, uh, kind of like a like 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 a like a trumpet uh, flower that kind of grows out of nothing. Great for kids to see an amaryllis flower, a bit like the hyacinths, because you can have them in a small little bulb in your house, and it, over a period of four or five days, this massive big flower comes up, and then it's spectacular for about a week or ten days, and then dies away, and it's it's really a nothing then for the rest of the year. But you can actually ignore it as well. Once it's in a in, in a container that doesn't get too wet, it'll come back again next year and do it all over again. Okay. Uh, listener says they're happy to hear you mention picking up the sticks. Also, try and get the leaves up or you will have a problem with moss in the lawn later in the year. Absolutely. You should have your leaves up at this stage. If you haven't, you will have definitely problems with moss in the lawn. And moss is always a huge problem in lawns. And this listener's absolutely right. If you leave debris lying on the ground, it's just going to create more uh, environment for moss to grow. The trick with moss is to have a very, very healthy, active growing grass and you'll have very little moss. So get out, uh, kind of aerate your ground, out with your, with, with, your, with, your, with your fork. If the ground's a little bit heavy, a dobby, give it a few, a few stabs to fork. It lets mm. air down into the roots and then feed your grass regularly. If you have your grass in good, strong growing conditions, moss won't come in. If you ignore your grass and never feed it, Moss will come in, absolutely, 100% given, given, given that you'll come in. I was terrified the first time the lawn was scarified because immediately afterwards it looked, it looked like terrible, it was yeah, in a yeah, terrible yeah, state. Yeah. Bombed outside. Not long afterwards, it was flourishing again. Yeah, it does, recovers very quickly after a couple of weeks. So scarification is, needs to be done every few years and it does take all the, all, all the old dead tatch, all the old dead moss out and uh, a little bit of fertiliser, a little bit of seed and you have a perfectly new lawn, very easy to maintain and look after. Joe, I think like many people, wants to turn a section of the lawn into a wild garden. So he would like to add some wildflower seeds. Mm. Good mixture of colour, also something that might keep the weeds down. What ideas would you have? Yeah, there's, there's an amazing selection of wildflower seeds available. Um, and it comes, they come in various forms. I know we sell about five or six different types in Fernhill. Some are very easy. As in, you get a box and it'll say this will do 17 square metres of, of flowers. And so you have to spray off your area, create a seed bed and put the flowers out. Some will be annual and some will be perennial. That means some will come every year and some will only come for the first flourish of the year. In general, uh, you tend to get four or five good years out of, uh, out of reseeding an area for wildflowers. What tends to happen is the first year you get an amazing flourish of everything. Second year, the annuals don't come, but the perennials will come. And then year after year after that, the perennials that like your garden will come back better. So you'll always get flowers, but you just won't get the same range in subsequent years. So you may have to, after four or five years, say, right, knock that back, roll it into the ground and let's start again. So it's a kind of a continual kind of a thing if you want lots of colour. And be careful when you are buying your seeds because there is lots of different mixes out there. Some very professional ones that'll do up to 500 square metres. There's some that'll only do 10 square metres. Some that are there for the birds and the bees and some are there mm. for flowers, some for heavy soil, some for light soil. There's quite a lot of information. So when you are going into your local garden centre or hardware to buy your wildflower seeds, bring all that information in with you. Usually horticulturists there will help you out and get you the, the correct one that will suit your garden. 
While you're at it, would you mix up the type of grass seed as opposed to the standard lawn? When you're doing wild flowers, you wouldn't generally have any grass in it at all. Okay. It's just flowers. It's absolutely. Now, you can't have what they call a wild meadow, which is wild grasses with a few wild flowers. And that's very good in big parkland areas where you're only cutting the grass once every every maybe twice a year uh, I see that we did that down in Burgess Park there recently at Lawn with the local town council where they put in wild meadow and you get all the native wild meadow grasses that are available as well as some, some wild flowers and just let them off and, and cut them back generally coming into late summer you cut them back a bit like you, like you would with, 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 a, with a meadow mm. a general meadow save it let the seed lie in the ground for a little while and then take it away so the seeds kind of go back into the ground and then regenerate themselves again next year I really hope the river doesn't wash away your good work I know it's high enough up it's fine Fair enough. <laughs> next is Catherine she's wondering if it is too late to prune a rose bush seem to recall missing my window of opportunity in November, but there is a second window of no, opportunity. You're absolutely, it's a, you're absolutely spot on time. Generally speaking, the time for pruning roses is in around Paddy's weekend. And the reason for that, you go, there's two windows for pruning roses. One is in the winter months, you, 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 you cut them back, stop them from rocking around in the wind. You cut them back by about a third to a half, depending on the size of the rose. And you just literally lop them back. No, no great technique to it. Leave them alone so that the wind doesn't knock them about too much. And then coming into, before the real growth comes in, in generally in around Paddy's weekend, uh, you cut them back really, really hard, down to the ground, almost butcher them. Uh, and the technique is very, very simple. Is you look at your rows, you, first thing you do is you prune away any old, tired and crossing branches. Just go, look at them, there's four or five there, looks a bit messy, cut them out first of all. That gets rid generally of about 50% of the branches straight away. After that, then, you're left with maybe half a dozen branches. You select then three or four good, strong branches with an outward-facing bud. This is a secret. It has to be an outward-facing bud. And you cut right back down to that outward-facing bud. At that point, then, what you're doing is you're creating an open rose. You should really be able to put your hand right down to the centre of a rose. That's the, that's, that's the ideal. The branches should be coming out from the centre. The reason for that is that roses are very prone to blights and funguses and diseases. So by creating an open, an open bush, you're allowing plenty of air to flow in around that bush during the summer months. So you get less disease and you get a nicer shaped rose bush as well. So hard pruning back to three or four good branches, outward facing bud, in around middle of March. That's it. Next is Jim in Shannon Bridge, who says he will be soon fertilising the lawn. Object, of course, is to have a nice green golf course-like lawn. What sort of fertiliser do you recommend? There's lots of them out there, but I wouldn't go fertilising just yet, Jim. It's a bit early. Uh, I think you're, you could be wasting your money fertilising any time before mid-March because um, fertiliser will get leached away. Uh, there's no great growth. So wait until the growth comes and you get better value for money. Late March into April is when you start fertilising everything, not just your grass, mm. but everything. And then you get a response. If you put the fertiliser on now, we get a cold, unseasonal bit of weather, that fertiliser is going to be gone before you need it. So save your money, wait till the, wait till the middle to end of March. Types of fertilisers, lots of them out there. Um, my favourite is one called Hummer Palmer. It's uh, organic, slow-release fertiliser. It'll do uh, about 800 square metres, big bag, about 35 euros. So it's great value. Uh, other good ones that are out there are, is Mobacter is very good. 
it's it's uh, moss away is very good. Uh, these are new fertilizers come on the market over the last number of years, and they're they're basically kind of like a, a moss preventer and moss remover type of fertilizer. They're not too high in nitrogen; they're quite high in potassium and phosphates. So they, they help develop the root system, so you don't get a big burst of growth, but you get a nice green, luscious growth, nice slow and steady. But you also get the bacteria working with the Mobacter and the Moss Master and the Moss Away to remove the moss. So What's it's the best way to distribute? Best way to distribute is probably a little fertiliser spreader. It's the most even way of doing it. Do it by hand, it's very hard to get it right. Mm. You, tend to, you tend to get it patchy. And if you are going to do it by hand, and because it's, it's a small little lawn, the trick is divide the fertiliser into two and put one going west and one going south, kind of cross over yourself. So you kind of you're doubling up, up, up on yourself. So if you are going to do it by hand, and just just spread it twice, and kind of kind of in different directions, you, you'll, you'll you'll cover your footsteps. But ideally, a little fertilizer spreader. You'll buy them for 50, 60 quid. Keep it clean. That's the trick with the fertilizer spreaders. A lot of people have fertilizer spreaders. They give out about them that they don't last. They don't last because fertilizer is very corrosive. So the minute you finish using them, wash it down with a hose, and you have it for years. That is the voice of Owen Reid from Fernhill Garden Centre in Athlone. Still time to ask your question by doing this. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner with the stories beyond the headlines. Midlands 103 Owen Reid is here from Fernhill Garden Centre in Athlone. After 11, Aviva Insurance is warning of clothes spontaneously igniting after being in the tumble dryer. We ask the Westmeath Fire Service if this is for real. Plus the perfect pancake and could curtains be the best heat saver of all in your home? Next question for Owen comes from a caller who wants to put weed killer down on their flower beds, which are currently covered in weeds and they want to do this before the flowers themselves come up. Yeah, that's, that's no problem putting weed killer down now if the flower the, the buds haven't come up yet but if there's flowers there already you've just got to be so careful because weed killer will kill everything it'll kill anything that's green full stop so weed killer is a super product in the gardens when used correctly and carefully so always read the instructions and just be aware that whatever you spray is probably going to die so you've got to make sure that you're spraying mm. the correct things and if in doubt keep away from it and get down on your hands and knees and weed it out it's as simple as that. But if it's glyphosate, for instance, Roundup, yeah. it's surface only. Anything that's yet to come up it's is surface safe. only, 100%. Mm. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people, when they're, when they're sowing seeds or uh, sowing plants, you can, you can, you can, you can spray away, uh, kill the weeds, and straight away sow your seeds on the ground. It's what they call stale seed bed method, which is a great way of, if you've got a, a weedy area and you want to sow grass, and you know that's prepared. So you, you said that the weather went away from you last year, didn't get a chance to sow your grass, but the, the grass was, the place was perfectly ready for it. But there's a few weeds out there. You can go and spray your spray your, your glyphosate on the ground there now, and then almost immediately, a, a few hours later, put your seeds on it, and they're not going to be affected. So it is safe from that point of view. It'll only kill green material that it touches. All right. Next is Lydia, who has a hedge that is eight months old and she's been told potash is a useful feed. When to apply, given the wet weather at the moment? Potash is a fantastic feed. Absolutely. It's a little bit like when we went back to, with regard to the Mobacter and the Moss Master and all that. Potassium phosphates, all these are brilliant for root growth and for, 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 um, 
for all plants, especially plants that you're trying to establish or plants that you want to get fruit out of or flowers out of, potash is, is a wonderful fertiliser. You can apply potash almost all year round because it doesn't force growth. It's not like nitrogen-based fertilisers. So you can certainly put potash on, on now. Whereas the earlier listener regarding putting fertilisers on the lawn, they're generally nitrogen-based fertilisers, hold off. But potash, you can certainly apply now and it will help the root growth of that hedge. Once you establish a good, strong root growth, that hedge then is going to get stronger and take up fertilisers that you will apply later in the season. So it is, an, it is an amazing product. A lot of people use potash primarily for fruit bushes. So if you've got fruit out in the garden and you want to get better fruit out of your fruit bushes, potash is a real gem for this. Just for anybody who's half listening, though, we're talking about bushes, trees. What would potash not be used for? Oh, you can use it on everything. There's really? Nothing, nothing you can't use it on. Yeah. You won't see any significant burst of growth. This is the point with potash. But it will get the engine of the plant in great condition. So you're, you're working on the root system and a good, strong root system will make a plant perform better. Next caller says you were discussing roses earlier. My roses, I suspect, are in need of a feed, but I'm going to be away in Australia for two months. So I'm wondering what slow-release fertiliser <coughs> would be useful and when can it be used? Yep, good question. Uh, two parts to that question. One is with roses, I would recommend maybe putting a mulch of farmyard manure down on top of the roses now, coming into the spring. Uh, because what that'll do is it, it gives a, it gives a nice mulch, stops the weeds coming up, but also it'll get down into the ground. Roses lead a really good fertile soil. So roses, when they're flowering, demand a lot of nutrients and they take a lot of nutrients out of the ground. So it's important to put it back again. Regard to the, the slow-release fertiliser, there is specific fertilisers for roses. It's, just, it's called rose fertiliser, but she's right. It's too early to put it on yet. But there is a very intelligent fertiliser out there uh, slow release fertilizer that will feed for six months and again you get it in your garden centres and it's you want to use small amounts of it uh, it, it, it releases the fertilizer by temperature so for every five degrees it will release more fertilizer Very clever. up to 25 degrees it's at full max and it's releasing its, 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 its feed so when it's five degrees out there which it is now it's releasing very little fertilizer so go into your local garden centre and look for a slow release fertilizer there's several brand names of it mm. and make sure that you don't put too much of it on. A little teaspoonful per rose is all it takes. So you won't need that much of it. So it's a kind of powder, is it? It's little pellets, little pellets. Yeah, I've seen those. Little I've seen pellets. some of them, uh, they would be bound together. Exactly. Nearly yeah. like acorns, stuffing them down. Yeah, around. they're like, they're like, they're like little, little, brown, little brown pellets. You get them in little acorns like that where they have a whole pile of them together. You stick it into a... They're great for containers in the summer months where you want them to be constantly fed. So for containers and pots and summer ones, they're fantastic. So it's great little fertiliser. Something every gardener should have in his shed is some slow-release fertiliser. We're out of time, but a very quick question from Ray in Raharney, who has moss on tarmac and is reluctant to spray for fear of polluting the water. Any natural certain, ways? There's certain products out there that are very good. One we, ha- we, one we use is one called Moss uh, Away. It's a product made up in Sligo. It's based on kind of very, very similar to kind of washing up liquid. Uh, and it, it's probably of all the products we used over the years it's the best five litre uh, of it into a knapsack and you'll do a couple of hundred metres of, uh, of, of tarmac and it, it, it works straight away as it does Moss away Moss away Owen Reid from Fernhill thank you very much for joining us yeah, it's been a pleasure Love the Midlands Love Midlands 103
Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, curtains. You think of home insulation and solar panels and underfloor heating and all of these very worthy but somewhat complicated solutions. Could good curtains be one of the best heat-saving solutions of all? More on that in 15 minutes. Also, if you are in the construction sector and you know there's huge opportunity in retrofitting, where do you go for the training? What's actually involved in a retrofit as opposed to a regular build? And since it is Pancake Tuesday, how do you eat yours? Lots of recipe suggestions here. Everything from uh, marmalade being placed on pancakes to the traditional sugar and lemon, which would be my personal favourite. Some savoury suggestions coming in as well, and I'll tell you what some of those say in a few minutes. First, though, Aviva is one of the country's biggest insurance companies and naturally provides home cover and says it has noticed a spike in claims for fires associated with tumble dryers. But in some cases, it's not the dryer itself that catches fire, but clothes spontaneously igniting after being taken out of the tumble dryer. Seemingly, it has something to do with oil residue being left on the fabric, and then fabrics being piled on top of each other and the heat accumulating. Pat Hunt is Senior Assistant Chief Fire Officer with Westmeath Fire Service. Pat, good morning. Can you assess the risk for us? Is this an isolated, unlikely one-in-a-million event, or have you come across it? Um, I've come across tumble dryer fires, washing machine fires, and indeed dishwasher fires as well, Will um, both domestically and in the business sector as well. And the article is is a very, very kind of uh, informed one in the sense that it says that if you don't, and this is where they've seen, Aviva have seen the fires occurring, is that when people don't allow for the cool down cycle in the tumble dryer and actually take the clothes out early, heat the clothes up before spreading them around and leaving them to dry or whatever, it's that residual heat that's trapped in the clothes that's actually resulting in these type of fires. Normally, we would see fires occurring in the appliance themselves where there's been an electrical problem or where there's been a significant lint buildup mm. where the machine hasn't been serviced. And that gives rise to a domestic or indeed a business fire. But in this instance, um, the um, assessor in Aviva, Gillian Devereaux, has said that it's really people not following the proper procedures the clothes coming out far too warm, being left in a pie before being either stowed away or probably put on airs to cool. But it's the fact that the, that cooling cycle isn't followed that's causing the inherent problem. And it's worth noting, Will, as well, that one thing that hasn't come across in the article that we're saying about buildups of oil and so on and so on, it's the amount of synthetic fibres we have in our clothes. Now, you may or may not remember back in the day, um, when people had kind of brine nylon sheets on beds, for example, or 90s in inverted commas of brine nylon, how flammable they were. Equally, the amount of synthetic fibres we're using in our clothes lead to far hotter fires than you would with conventional natural fabrics, for example, linens, cottons, wools, etc. Like I'm sure Will, more than myself, the shirt you put on your back this morning is a mixture of some sort of polyester with cotton blend. Mm purely because it makes it easy to iron and it makes it easy to wash and it's also stain resistant. But the problem is that these man-made fibres are far more flammable than their natural counterparts. And that's where the the element of risk also rises. 
I was talking to Sinead before coming on, Will, and I was just doing a kind of a simple, a simple math test. If you use your washing machine, your standard washing machine at home, depending on the, the cycle, but a normal cycle will take 900 watts of electricity. If you use, um, uh, uh, um, say for example, a uh, dishwasher, it will use 1800 watts per cycle. Now, if you use um, a dry or tumble dryer to dry your clothes, it will use over three and a half thousand watts. So again, 900 for your di- for your mm. standard uh, washing machine, 1800 for your um, for your standard dishwasher, and double that again for a tumble dryer. So shows how intense of the by, energy use is then. Precisely that will it is hugely, hugely, hugely um, costly to run, and also as well very energy intensive. Now I know people have been advised to run these at night. And whenever we do fire safety messages, we say, for the love of all that's holy, do not run these at night. Do not run them in, uh, unsupervised or unattended. People have a habit of, you know, throwing on a wash and then going out and doing the shopping on a Saturday or whatever. It's really, really dangerous because these appliances suck such a huge amount of electricity out of the grid to power themselves. If anything does go wrong, the results can be catastrophic. But yet, in this climate of high energy costs, smart meters and therefore time of day tariffs, people are being driven towards using electricity off peak and invariably the lowest rates are in the middle of the night. And you may have your tumble dryer and your EV if you have one and who knows what else, all drawing energy at the same time. Sounds like, on one hand, it's a recipe for savings, but it's not good from a fire safety perspective. It's not, Will. It certainly isn't. And it feeds into the article that you're you're feeding into in the the next 15 minutes or so in relation to retrofitting and indeed home home energy and home energy use. We're becoming more electrically dependent. The problem with that, Will, is the fact that people in the current economic climate are trying to save as much money as they can, trying to cut back on their energy usage and using night, night saver schemes, etc., etc. There is an inherent risk in doing this. And the, the thing I've always pointed out when I'm doing talks is, how much money are you planning to save? Probably one, two, three euro. I know that's quite a lot for some people in some vulnerable sectors of society. Think about how much it would cost to rebuild your home. You're looking at, in the figures for, I believe, Heather Humphreys from last week or the week before, over 300,000. So, Look at it in that sense. Financially, can you swallow the um, increased costs for running your dishwasher, your washing machine or your tumble dryer? Or would you rather risk the risk of fire and losing your family home? And I don't think anybody in the Midlands or indeed further afield would wish that on anybody. A little bit of pushback from a few listeners about the cooling cycle on the tumble dryer. That Mm -hmm. what is the difference between running the cooling cycle or taking the clothes out and allowing them to cool in the open air. There's a major, there's a major difference. It's this is where this article comes from. It's the fact that when you take clothes out of the tumble dryer, still hot, and you leave them unattended, or indeed in the machine unattended before emptying it, the problem is that um, the residual heat is sufficient to cause the fire because you have trapped such a massive amount of energy in drying the clothes that the clothes themselves, and as I said, the fact that they're not natural fibres, that they are uh, man-made fibres, the risk here 
is that they will actually, once they spontaneously combust, but there'll be enough heat energy there to cause a fire. And once a fire occurs, it's very, very difficult to stop it. So let's put the learning into practice. Ideally, if you can afford it, keep the cooling cycle on. That's the simplest way. Or if you are still energy conscious, take out the clothes, spread them about and allow them to cool that way. Exactly that. It's like anything else. Once you have a current of air going through them and you separate them out so they're not in the mass, you're breaking down the size of the heated element into smaller discrete particles or smaller discrete packages of heat and it won't, it won't or you lower the risk of, of a fire occurring. That's very, very good, good advice well, and a very good summary as well. How, a few people are asking, how many times would you run a tumble dryer concurrently? Well, that's 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 a loaded question. Well, if it depends on it depends on size your family. I know myself. My my sister has has still has six kids, but um, when they were at school, the tumble dryer was actually a case of the machine. The washing machine finished its cycle. Mm. The clothes went into the tumble dryer, and then another load went in on top of that, and so on. It's As conveyor I said, belt. My sister has six children. Yeah, it's a conveyor belt. It's basically, and it's like anything else, you know, yourself. It's a case of you'll have a day that you can actually do the washing because you've set aside the hours to do it, and so on, or indeed. Children going, being children, it's a case of the sports events, they have, they're playing football, whatever the case may be. And uh, as a result, uh, you need to clean the kit or have it ready for the next day or the following day or whatever it is. There's always that continual, you know, what's the expression, you know, life gets in the way and yes, washing, yes. washing is part of, a part of that life. So let me frame the question differently then. What interval of cooling would be prudent from a fire safety point of view? Uh, we suggest we suggest will uh, approximately three hours will be will be sufficient just to allow a break in things to to cool down. It's like anything else, if it's in a laundry area or in a standard kitchen, if you allow three three hours between cycles, that should be sufficient to allow the various elements to discharge the residual heat and um, before you start it again on the next cycle. We've had a comment from Joe, who is a retired electrical engineer. He says very often fluff would build up around the three kilowatt element can often be where you don't see it and Mm. therefore that is always going to accumulate and always going to be a risk uh, unless it's serviced on a regular basis I presume he's not just fishing for work no he's not and he's dead right he's dead right it's a case of you know yourself will appliances go into a family home and the only time they're looked after is when they break down, mm. or indeed, uh, the only time that anything is ever done with them is, as I said, when they break down, or indeed when you change it out and get a new one. Pat, grateful for your time. Thank you. You're more than welcome. I'll take care. Bye bye. Pat Hunt from the Westmeath Fire Service. When you call 0818 300 103 is the Midlands 103 comment line. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103. A few people are wondering where was the article. It's in the Irish Independent today if you want to read more. And the warning initially from Aviva Insurance, but backed up there by... Pat Hunt and indeed Joe and Kilcormick as well. Thanks for the text, Joe. We're already putting the next Midlands Today show together. Get your topic included. Email midlandstoday at midlands103.com. The Midlands 103 Green Home and Energy Show is taking place on Sunday in the Tullamore Court Hotel. Lots of different ideas and some perhaps more complicated than others. So let's start off with a very simple way of retaining more heat in your home. And could it be the humble curtain? Noelle O'Donoghue is here from Noelle Interiors in Dangan. Good morning. Good morning, Will. 
Lovely to be here. Pleasure. You are surrounded by curtains. So describe what you've brought in. Um, Well, I'm always saying to my customers and anybody that has come in to me, I will um, go on about um, lined and interlined curtains. So traditionally, you know, curtains were invented in some of the old stately homes to keep the heat in and the drafts out. And um, and to do that, they would have used an interlining. So an interlining is like a blanket lining between the fabric and the lining. So that makes the curtains much heavier. And um, and when the curtains are hung, they have to be hung in a very specific way. So a good, uh, um, experienced um, fitter would know all of this. Mm. Um, so the curtains should be hung that the sides of the curtains are returned back into the wall. Now, we would do a lot of old houses where the windows can't be changed because they're listed houses. Um, so, you know, they wouldn't have double glazing. And um, we'd even maybe even Velcro the curtains down the side. Um, then they discovered that, you know, should the draft would come up um, over the top of the pole. So that's why pelmets um, came into vogue so that that would uh, keep it in as well. And then the bottom of the curtains, um, they would have put like a lead weight. And we would often do this as well to put in a lead weight at the bottom. So that would hold the fabric in because I know I grew up in an old house and we had a big, huge open fire. And like the bigger the fire, the bigger the draw mm-hmm. and the big drafty windows and, you know, you used to have to get the um, coffee table and shove it against the windows because it'd be blooming out into the middle of the floor. So, um, But yeah. I'm fascinated because I grew up in a house that was built in 1979 and naively, perhaps, was always under the impression that curtains were for aesthetics, for privacy, not for heat retention. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That they would. And even though we have double glazing nowadays, you still do lose a lot of um, thermal heat through your windows, you know. So they do have a fantastic function. Like it isn't just um, for aesthetics. Um, now, we would use blackout linings then as well so that people, you know, um, if they don't want the light in, especially if it's a kid's room or their mm. own bedroom or mm. whatever. Um, but the interlining will um, definitely retain the heat. So it's to keep the heat in and the drafts out. I know we don't have as much drafts now, but if you have an old listed house, that would be an issue. Um, and they do work. Like they were invented for a reason and that is the reason. So now I lots of customers get them because they just love the look of them. And I suppose um, over time, um, it was the old, big old state house that had those curtains. So it became synonymous with wealth and um, luxury, you know. Um, so, but they do have a function. And I mean, um, it's not they just... They still have them, by the way, in the County Arms Hotel, those older rooms to the front. Yeah. Yes, Which yeah. is where the bridal suite is. It, you know, it's, they're phenomenal looking, but obviously functional as well. I presume not all curtains are made equally. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so our curtains, we make them ourselves in our own workroom. So I have two great girls out in the workroom that work with me. And um, so there's lots of curtains that they would use kind of like it's called a mock interlining. So it's actually quite stiff, so they don't drape very well. So you just don't get all that the effectiveness the same way. You won't have the lead weight in the bottom. You know, you won't just have the same look. But um, to do interlined curtains, they would all have to be hand sewn down the sides. Otherwise, they won't um, drape properly. Mm. Um, So there is a way of doing it. It's done for a reason. Um, And look, I know some people would notice the difference, but we do. And it looks better. And then people don't realise why it looks better. But, um, you know. How thick is the interlining? um, Well, it's like a blanket. So that's it there. You know, it's, it's, it's it is like a blanket. 
and um, and that's the best way of describing it. So that it is, um, but that has to be done very. You know, you can't just stick that in. Like you know, it's it's it has to be done properly, and there is a a skill and an art in doing it to for it to um, hang properly and look right. You know, and to last the test of time as well. Over, but it's not just the um, the curtains. We'd also do Roman blinds, and we use an interlining in that as well. Um, so again, it gives it you know that heavier, more luxurious look. But um, like even our local pub out in Dangan and Ceres, they got um, lovely uh, blinds um, recently. And everybody's saying, oh, God, now, Noel, the place is too hot because <laughs> there used to be a few drafts. Well, look, um, good complaint yeah. compared to where we were. The materials used and bearing in mind we are at a very eco-focused show on Sunday, where do they come from? Um, well, I mean, we would use a lot of natural fabrics, um, but then we're also using um, nowadays a, like an awful lot of the newer books that are coming out are all from recycled materials. So they're either recycled bottles or recycled fabrics, um, which is fantastic. And it makes absolutely no difference to the quality. I mean, it's something now that's kind of coming on, you know, the brand of the um, fabrics. You'll see a label on it to say that it's um, a global um, recycled standard. Um, so that's kind of coming mainstream um, that like, you know, I would be looking at fabrics because of um, its quality, the appearance of it, the colour. Um, so you're not always thinking about um, recycled materials. So it's wonderful that that's there and it's not changing the um, anything in the look or the aspect of what we're doing, you know. You've got some adventurous colours in there. Um, well, there's always something there for everybody, but... Um, yeah, like okay, you get a very bright blue, or maybe it's just the way the light is shining on it. Yeah, well, the, these are uh, well. My personal taste would be reasonably neutral, and then add in splashes of colours. Um, the trend now has changed. Um, obviously, we're gone well away from the greys. Um, oh, are we? Oh, oh yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> Catch up, Will. Pay attention. Yeah, yeah, like a long time ago. Um, but uh, we're still in natural colours, um, so. I would say instead of grey, I would say stone, even veering towards maybe even browns. So to some people that might sound, you know, a bit uh, old fashioned, but everything changes. It's not the same as the brown that was out, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I wonder how quickly it'll date. But sure, it's the the grey is somewhat safe. Yeah. No, it's not. It's really, really passe. No way. You don't want grey anywhere. Um, so like anybody that's thinking of doing a scheme now, forget grey. You know, well, there was that during that grey period, there was like a couple of different coloured greys and there was a big trend for silvery greys. That was somewhere that I never really went because it's very cold and especially, you Mm. know, this northern hemisphere. um, It's it wasn't something that particularly appealed to me. So um, I I suppose architecturally as more and more natural light takes over because of the Dermot Bannon effect, it gives more Licence well, it depends internally. on the, where your window is. I mean, if you have a north facing window, you have um, that'll change the whole tone of your colours anyway. So, um, but if it is brighter naturally, yeah. it gives more freedom to choose some darker colours. Um, yeah, there is a, a trend into the darker colours as well. So everything is a lot more earthy. So you know, if you are choosing darker colours, you're into 
you know, as I say, kind of, you know, browns and variations all there through. Um, greens, all those lovely foresty, earthy green colours. Um, uh, blue, navy, that has always been uh, um, something that, you know, it's timeless, really, you know, because blue was always there, you know. But like, you know, 30 years ago, you would have put it with pink, whereas now you're putting it with uh, a stony colour, you know. Um, do you do up the house every year? Uh, no. <laughs> I get the pleasure of doing up other people's houses, so that satisfies my need to, um, uh, you know, be creative or whatever. Um, but I have recently, I did uh, redid my kitchen living area. Um, the kitchen was falling apart. Um, so <laughs> it, um, it had... Uh, Lasted uh, long enough and it just was gone beyond the beyond. So I had to change it. And um, like we're 20 years in the house and it was a cheap kitchen to begin with. So Kieran Darcy came out and uh, did a fantastic job. We Kieran have, will uh, be at the Green Home and Energy show as well. I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Kieran lives near me. So he uh, I work with him on a good few jobs as well. So, um, um, yeah, no, I was very pleased with it. But the kitchen is, uh, well, I would call it an off white, but... You would call it white, Will. <laughs> um, and what colour are the presses? That's what I mean. The The press units are... OK, are, so the kitchen itself, the units are yeah. off-white and then yeah. the walls? Uh, the walls then are... Mm, it's kind of a, a, a muddy colour. It's not grey. No, no, no. I wouldn't call it grey. But it is a muddy colour. So, you know, but it's more into the brown rather than uh, grey. You know. And the curtains? Uh, I've uh, William Morris fabric. It's a uh, um, that's all in the blinds, and then there's playing curtains. Um, but there's it's blues and versions of blues. Uh, there's no grey, <laughs> definitely no grey. Um, yeah, on my Instagram and Facebook um, page, I actually have a video of the kitchen up there, and I'll do the living area now soon as well. Um, or so, indeed, your brain can be picked on Sunday at the Midlands 103 absolutely. Green Home and Energy Show as well. Yeah, no problem. Just don't mention grey. Don't mention grey. You don't want grey, Will. Nobody wants grey. They did. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, we'll have a stand there on Sunday and uh, we'll be giving out flyers for uh, a little discount on orders and... Um, uh, we also have the uh, raffle or what uh, to win um, some of our designer Sanderson fabric um, cushions. Mm-hmm. Um, so and them, they're very plush. We'll have some cushions for sale on the day as well. So bring your uh, purse with you. Or the other half, as the case may be. <laughs> yeah. Noel, thank you very much for joining us. No problem, Will. That was great. And her brain is there to be picked next Sunday in the Tullamore Court Hotel. Average temperature at the moment, six degrees. Here with the news and views that you can use. Midlands Today. Midlands 103. Perfect pancakes on the way in around 15 minutes, plus more information on the great Valentine's giveaway here on Midlands 103 with thanks to lots of different companies, including Haven Pharmacy in Mullingar and so many others. We'll tell you more about that in a minute, but... Back to the Green Home and Energy Show taking place in the Tullamore Court Hotel this Sunday. And we've talked a lot about, I suppose, the heating and solar and other steps you can take to uh, insulate your home, to be more energy efficient. But let's come at it from a different direction. If you are in the construction industry or you aspire to be, 
and you want to get more involved in retrofitting work, well, where do you turn for training? Well, one option certainly is to John Kelly. He's the manager of the National Construction Training Campus in Mount Lucas in County Offaly. Morning, John. Morning, Will. Can you give us a flavour of what courses are popular at the moment? Yeah. Actually, I'm not long off the phone, Will, to a guy this morning who was um, working in the construction industry for, I think he said, nearly 20 years. And um, his issue at the minute is he's, he's trying to get SEI approved so he can start delivering contracts under their scheme. Because uh, as you might, may be aware, the SEI approves all the grants uh, that are available for different people, wonder whether it's a deep retrofit or shallow retrofit. And I suppose the only obstacle he has preventing him from becoming an approved installer is that piece of paper or accreditation. Mm. And that's what we offer. So for people that are brand new to the industry, whether they're coming in at a basic level, uh, very green, with maybe a small bit of construction experience, we there's a training course to suit those all the way up to apprentices that are going through um, uh, their apprenticeship, be it in many of the trades, plumbing, electrical, carpentry and, um, and the rest. But then we also offer training, which is our biggest area, and that's for upskilling of existing people within the sector. So the advice I would have given that guy this morning was to sign up for a retrofit skills course um, and then take it from there because it opens the door. So we, we do everything from... Uh, the principles of insulation uh, all the way up to the actual um, management and uh, supervisory areas. So we, we offer lots of things across the board. And I suppose that's the key reason why we're attending the Green Home and Energy Show again this year um, is to raise awareness of the types of training that is available just for the person on the street that maybe is looking to do a retrofit in their own house. But more importantly, for those that are in the trades to try upskill them and then attract new people in. Well, if we extend your conversation with that man a little bit. He's got an existing skill set. He needs, obviously, to augment that. So what does that journey look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose, look, there's new building regulations came in in 2019. So any house that was technically built before them was part of the old regulations. So if you gained your qualification pre then, you're still fully competent and qualified in your area of expertise, but it's just the new uh, regulations that have come on board. So in his case, he has a, a background in plastering and he wants to get into the area of external wall insulation. So what we offer is a hybrid model of training. So he will come to us because he's experienced already. He will do, if you like, the shortened version of training. So it's topping up his skills. He will come to us uh, online for two half days, two three hour sessions. And then the following week, he will come to us Monday to Friday for a full week with us where he'll do training and upskilling on the first three days. And then he'll be assessed on his skill set on the Thursday. And then on the Friday, then his last day, he'll have to complete a theory exam. And then that that recognition, um, the award and qualification he'll get will enable him to become SCI approved because they fully endorse our programs as they would have been on the consortiums that developed the training courses that we offer as well. So it's quite so condensed they're, they're, they're into a short period of time. The, the training is yeah, quite it yeah, and I suppose that's the key thing because it's, when you're looking at upskilling people, time is of the essence. So the thing that we offer is fully funded training for upskilling of existing employees. So that takes, if you like, one of the barriers in relation to cost away. So our ask of them is that if they donate their time, the training will be provided free of charge. And um, the idea is if we train up the industry, we'll future-proof the sector. And that's the idea. So we've had a number of companies, like I would have spoken to you, Will, last year in advance of um, coming on the show. 
the very first one that ran last year. And we weren't sure, you know, what, who were we going to meet and all the rest. But it was phenomenal, the turnout uh, on the Sunday. There was huge crowds. And I suppose what we actually did was we worked with a lot of companies all over Ireland. But we actually got to speak to the local people of Tullamore and the, and the surrounding areas of Offaly and Leash that came to the show. And they're the people we need to get to as well because we need to educate them um, in relation to what they want or what they're looking for. Um, and there's a lot of companies that are coming down uh, um, setting up as one-stop shops and I know Electric Ireland are there they're a one-stop shop so what they can offer is a full service from start to finish you don't have to engage three or four trades they can do it all there and we have a couple of our graduates from last year have actually gone on and set up as one-stop shops as well so like that's really positive from our perspective and the more one-stop shops there is the more informed the individual can be because part of their remit is to give an explanation of exactly what's involved because that's the biggest piece that's missing is education so we actually offer training for people that are going through a retrofit or planning a retrofit they can come in what what we call the NZEB fundamental awareness course which is just a one day course and they learn all the basics which helps inform them on what they might be embarking on whether it's a deep or a shallow retrofit in their own home excellent and of course sustainable energy authority of ireland will also be there on sunday to talk about the grant piece as well I saw last year a couple of parents at the stand and I'm sure in this day and age, leaving cert coming at us and people considering options afterwards. What sort of, and are there options for leaving certs at the National Construction Training Centre? Yeah, and, and I suppose that that's crucial as well because there was a report obviously launched yesterday um, and it was in all the news headlines about the recruitment drive of trying to attract people that are, are no longer in Ireland but may have worked here previously or are actually from Ireland and they're trying to attract them home. Mm. We've actually been involved in that in the background, uh, myself and the training manager in Lee Shoffley ETB, um, Jolene Hall, and we would have been trying to see what we can do in our remit. So what we will be providing as part of that is testimonials or, if you like, case studies of examples of people that through our training have, have gone through it. But that, that's a big piece to try to attract people home. The easier piece is to actually use the people that are here. So we're going to try target schools um, and we actually have our mobile rig um, that we travel the country. It was in Bunkrana for the first three weeks of January. It was in Dundrum last week and it's going to Moat next week. So we are actually traveling around the country promoting construction as a career, but particularly in the area of NZEB and retrofit. Because if you look at the government um, perspective, there's two plans that were released. One was the National Retrofitting Plan and the other was the Housing for All Plan. And both of those include 900,000 homes that either have to be built or have to be interacted with. So if you're looking at construction as a career, as a parent, um, construction is a viable alternative. Uh, like there's 30, 40 years worth of plans there on the table at the minute. But like we were in the middle of a housing crisis. We need builders. We need construction people. And the figure, it kind of goes from 50,000 to 70,000, depending on what report or what update you get. But that's in the region of what we need between now and 2030. And we're already in 2024. So, you know, like we need people in. So we're trying to attract more kids especially we're working with the Construction Industry Federation with transition years and trying to track them into construction as an option before they enter the senior cycle. But we also provide um, a senior cycle program as well. And we're just trying to show the benefits of construction. And if one or two people decide I might give it a go or I might look at it a bit more because apprenticeship is, it's no longer a dirty word. It's no longer the alternative version because I wasn't good enough for college. Every apprentice in Ireland goes to college in their first year, in their second year, in their third year and in their fourth year, depending on, on which one they're in. But they all go to college. They leave with a fully internationally recognised qualification 
that stands the, the test of time and also is highly recognised around the world. So it is it is a really good opportunity now for people and especially parents. And that's what we would have seen at the show last year. Yeah. Parents wonder what's involved from their own, own perspective, but particularly if they have a daughter or son, is construction a good idea for them? And what's the industry telling you about the skills that are going to be in the greatest demand in the future? Yeah, I suppose, well, that's actually changing as we go along. So the profile of the apprentice is actually the age profile demographic has gone up. But more importantly, with the new advancements in technology, like we've embraced the whole area of digital construction in, in Leash Off Leash to be, um, and specifically in Mount Lucas on the course that we offer. So For, forgive me, John. in the digital Celtic Tiger, yeah. Yes, so digital construction. So in relation to, say, in the Celtic Tiger, we would have had 300,000 people directly involved and indirectly through supply chain involving construction. Now we we need less people, but what we do need is more modern methods of construction attached. So that's off-site manufacture, on-site installation, new methodologies, new information. It's using like machine control, all these kind of things that we've embraced in Mount Lucas. Like we have a fully uh, kitted out simulation room where we train people how to operate machines behind a, a computer screen before we send them out onto the real thing uh, onto the real thing and it's areas like that of digital construction modern methods of construction that's what will help us achieve the housing targets because we can't we, we can't get 300,000 people overnight but what we can do is work smarter and that's by uh, producing houses inside big factory units putting them onto the back of a lorry and then when they arrive on site, instead of having 20, 30 people working on a job, you have a mobile crane and five or six people able to do it because all the, if you like, the the hard work has been done off-site in a controlled environment where they can print off houses. You know, it, it, we visited a site in Cork and it's unbelievable to see what's actually out there. And the great thing is that Leash and Offaly uh, in general has loads of companies that are doing really great things in this area of modern methods of construction. And we're going to be the home to the National Demonstration Park in Mount Lucas, which is going to be great for the two counties and great for the sector as a whole. It's genuinely exciting and it's refreshing as well after so many dark years in construction. So onwards and upwards in that respect. This Sunday, you'll have a large stand at the Green Home and Energy Show. I presume a full crew, plenty of time for detailed conversation. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's the key thing. We want to meet people. We want people that come up and ask us questions because, look, that's the biggest piece that's missing is education. So that's why we're attending an event is to raise awareness and hopefully help people. The SEI um, will be there. They'll be able to up, uh, update people in relation to grants. Um, and Electric Garden obviously are there in relation to the one-stop shop. And it was just a really good event to be part of, but really informative. And people, everyone that left, learned a bit more about the area. And look, the biggest fear factor is the cost and all the rest. But when you have the SEI ourselves and Electric Ireland there, you have you've the right people in the room, along with all the other exhibitors that are going to be there. So we want to talk to as many people as possible. So come talk to us and we will hopefully help you in relation to a bit of education. And if you are in the sector and you want to find out about training, um, just call to see us at the stand and, and myself or some of the team will be able to talk you through it. John Kelly from the National Construction Training Campus in Mount Lucas. Thank you very much for joining us on Midlands 103 this morning and thanks, thanks for your well. support. We'll see him and the team on Sunday in the Tullamore Court Hotel. Midlands Today with the stories beyond the headlines. Midlands 103. Pancake Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday if you prefer. Many debates about how to make the perfect pancake and the man with the answer is Brian Meehan who is head chef at the Central Hotel in Tullamore. Good morning. Morning Will. So you've come prepared with American style. 
How do you get them a bit fluffier like this? I use self-raising flour instead of plain flour. I also, when I mix in the eggs, I separate the whites from the yolks. I mix the yolks with the flour, the milk. If you want to use sugar, vanilla, whatever extra flavorings you want to put in that. But I beat the egg whites almost like you're making a meringue. And then when that's done, I fold it in and that helps it raise. Right. So plenty of protein in there. Then. Yes. Yes. So then toppings. This is always a matter of debate. Some people like their syrup. Some people like their traditional honey and uh, maybe sugar and lemon. What do you go for? Me personally, I'd, I have a sweet tooth. I go for the chocolate. What's popular, though? It, it, again, it depends on the customer. You know, everything's popular, but in this day and age, people are trying to be healthier. So fruits, nuts would be the, the main, yeah. You've got um, a little setup here. Yes. So um, I presume this is a test, is it? To see who can make a decent pancake. Well, I was hoping to test a few of your staff, all right. Excellent, because they have surrounded us here at yeah. Midlands 103. Whenever there is food, the staff arrive. So Sinead Hubble, come around here. Sinead is a, an accomplished baker, or, really? or claims to be at least. Never claimed that. I see David Hollywood there as well. Yeah, he's super good. Yeah, David, you come around here, you that's uh, fit and doing your cross country, <laughs> and we need to add a few pounds to you now after you did, what was it, a 4.15 average pace in the cross country championship? Yeah, I'm more than happy to get the calories back up this morning. Okay, so we can hear the uh, oil is starting to fizzle. So it's a question of how hot does it need to be? That hot. Okay. That, that, <laughs> that hot. That's the scientific answer. I always try and you, you tend to burn the first one and uh, you can adjust the temperature so, then. To, so that's going to happen right now. Uh, no, I, I have the temperature one. right, oh, so right, it should be fine. fine. <laughs> one thing I'm curious, with the first one, there's always the risk of it being too oily. Yeah. Is that inevitable? Again, it depends. I, I, I personally think the pan... Is, is a big help. If, if you have a bad pan, it's going to stick and you, you find yourself putting more oil on it. But if, if you have a really good pan, I know people sometimes say a bad workman blames his tools, but in the case of making pancakes, it's in the name. You need a good pan. So I'm not going to get away with blaming the bad pan you on this You should with one. these. These are good pans. <laughs> no, but I've, I've read various recipes today. Some would say you get some kitchen towel, you dab it almost dry, but there's obviously yes. a little residue or film behind then you pop in your pancake and then you dab again with that towel between each pancake. You're nodding and agree. I, I would tend to agree with that. But again, I do think the pan itself helps with that as well. A, a, ba a bad pan. I, I know some of these nonstick pans say they're nonstick and then you use them and they're absolutely not. Okay. I, I that's good, um, industrial pan here. So that, that that's helping us here today. Now that's been fizzling away there for a while. So how long do you leave it, Sinead? Until it starts to soak up and it's not liquidy. Now, I don't know, I think you've already made a mistake here. Yeah, like you can see around the periphery. Oh, I, I would leave it another yeah, maybe no, 30 it, seconds, it Sinead, before you... Remember... No. Not unless Pat Hunt of the fire service is still listening. Um, but you have to remember, I suppose, it's a thicker pancake than what we would be used to here. The American style probably needs that bit longer on each side. Once it starts to bubble on the top, I would start to flip it, or even if you aren't confident about that, just a spatula and turn it over. Okay, you're going to flip. We're going to stand back. Cameras are on. I've done this about 10 times a day, and it's been fine. I'm, I'm really looking out for the fire alarms, and yes, very good.
Okay, so it's ever so slightly bronze, not really. It's more like an Irish tan. It's golden brown, Will. Sinead hasn't made at. this, though. I've been supervising it. Okay, fair enough. Yes. Well, while that one is on its uh, other side, David Hollywood, step up, please. Okay, yeah. I presume I'll be getting as much assistance as as I Sinead got. Just okay. Over. Oh, that's quite thick. The, okay. That's a bit like myself. Good man. Right. And it should be the whole ladle here. The whole yeah? ladle. Yeah. The whole ladle. Okay. Good man. Thank you. Appreciate it. By the way, is this a big wadge of butter? That's butter. Just um, if if the oil isn't enough, sometimes you put a tiny little knob of it to help. I was hoping it was ice cream. No, it's the only thing I didn't have. I wasn't sure whether we'd have a freezer here today so i have cream i've bananas i've a, an assortment of berries nuts um a homemade mixed berry coolie and the old reliable some wedges of lemons i also have some maple syrup and some chocolate and you've got this boy over here it's, a, it's in a piping bag just for ease yes okay sinead how much longer are you going to give well, yours well the table was in the way i couldn't get back to my pancake we'll see how we're doing that oh yeah. Soaked up. That soaked up nearly all the oil. Um, yes. Oh, oh, she's trying to. Flip. Hey. <laughs> she did a full flip. Ah, there we go. Nicely bronzed. Yeah. Yeah, that looks. In my that opinion, one? that looks perfect. Would you serve that in the Central Hotel? I would be happy to serve that in the Central Hotel. Would somebody you? ask for their money back? I would hope not. I would be blaming Sinead, though, not myself. <laughs> All right, David, yours is starting to bubble ever so slightly, more so around the periphery rather than in the middle. Is it in the middle that you're watching for? Just the heat a small bit. It looks like we're all, we still have a bit, bit to go for this one, do you reckon? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's breaking up slightly. Just to just heat a small bit. It might be slightly low. What are you planning today in the Central Hotel for Pancake Tuesday? We have a small pancake menu there. Um, we have berries... Uh, strawberries, blueberries, we have um, bananas, we have again the old reliable um, lemons and sugar and cream or ice cream on them so hopefully people will come in and sample. David you better turn that over or else we'll be calling 999. You're the expert are you? Well, I'm just nervous I'm smelling stuff <laughs> You just want to eat it, that's all that's wrong with you, you will. I mean I, I don't feel it's ready yet personally. Okay, fine you leave it and and <laughs> While he's leaving that, it's time to wish you a very happy Pancake Tuesday. Whatever you get up to and however you eat yours. Sinead Hubble did all the hard work today. Well, it actually looks like the engineering team and the pancake team did. But uh, we'll be back on your radio tomorrow morning from nine, assuming the place doesn't burn down. Goodbye. Midlands Today with Bus Erin. Use your TFI Young Adult or Student Leap Card on board Bus Erin services as part of the Transport for Ireland network. Visit buserin.ie today.